question that we just confessed, which is, what is God? (laughs) What is God? How are we to describe and think about and even talk about our triune God? What comes to our mind when we consider the one who made us, who sustains us, and who has saved us by his grace? And if I can make the question even more personal, how would you describe God? (laughs) If someone asked you, what is God? How would you describe God? Not just what he has done, as creator, redeemer, sustainer, but who he is. How would you describe the God that you worship? Well, if you're kind of searching around in your mind or you feel maybe a little bit nervous, I don't really know how I would do that, you can rest assured because you are not alone in this struggle. This same question was on the minds and really plagued the members of the Westminster Assembly that, that wrote what we know as the Westminster um, Confession of Faith, the Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechism. This question of what is God is the same question that plagued them. How do we describe, how do we speak about our God who is infinite and eternal? How do we speak about this one? And it actually left them, while they were debating how to answer this question, in their catechism, it left them speechless. They, they ran up against the wall. They didn't know how to speak about God. And so they asked the youngest member of the assembly, George Gillespie, to pray. <laughs> pray that they might have wisdom on how to answer this question. And he began his prayer like this. O oh God, Thou art a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In your being, power, wisdom, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. (laughs) If you're paying attention, that should sound familiar to you. Because that's what we just confessed in our confession of faith. This prayer of the youngest member of the assembly became question number four of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question number eight in the Baptist Catechism. What is God? (laughs) God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, power, wisdom, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So we are not alone in this struggle as we seek to describe the one who is indescribable. And we will look at the next seven weeks, seven attributes of our living and true God, and many of them that have actually been neglected in our day. Things like divine simplicity, Things like God's impassibility, God's immutability, maybe some words that you've never even heard of before. We're going to take the time to look and see what these great attributes of our God are. Using classical orthodox distinctions, confessing what the church has believed for the last 2,000 years and what has been preserved for us in our confession of faith. But the purpose of studying the attributes of God, the purpose of studying these perfections of our God, is not only to give us a bigger and clearer view of who our God is, but it is to deepen our communion and fellowship with Him. To deepen our fellowship and communion with Him. To increase our worship and awe of the one who is greater than we can even imagine. And so we're going to begin today by looking at 
the incomprehensibility of our God, that our God is unfathomable and unsearchable in his goodness and might. And what we're going to see today is what does it mean when we say that God is indescribable? is incomprehensible. What does that mean? How does Scripture declare for us this truth about God? And we're also going to see that the same one who is indescribable, incomprehensible, has condescended to reveal himself to us as the only way of salvation found in the person and work of Christ. So I'm going to read our passage for us this morning and then I'll pray for us, and then we will look to God's Word. We'll be focusing this morning mainly on verse 3, but I'll begin at verse 1. This is the Word of the Lord. A song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, And praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he write it upon our hearts this morning. Let's go to our great God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we we come before you now. Um in awe of you, in awe of your greatness and your glory. And, um, and we come before you, Lord, in one sense, um, trembling, um, because our minds cannot comprehend you. We cannot fathom your goodness and glory. And yet, you reveal yourself to us in and through your word. And so we pray this morning, Lord, that as we come to Scripture, as we come to your word, that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would open the eyes of our hearts by the power of your Spirit to see and understand a picture of your greatness and your glory. That we would come this morning, Lord, to deepen our fellowship and our communion with you as you reveal yourself to us, and that we would have a bigger and clearer picture of who you are this morning. Help us, Lord, in our weakness and in our frailty, and we pray that you would do these things according to your will, and in Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. We're going to look at three different things this morning. We're going to look first at the doctrine of incomprehensibility, the doctrine of incomprehensibility. What is it? What does it mean when we say these things? Secondly, we'll look at the testimony of Scripture. What does Scripture have to say about this attribute of God? And thirdly and finally, we'll look at the condescension of God as He is pleased to reveal Himself to us. So we'll look first at the doctrine of of incomprehensibility, the doctrine of incomprehensibility. Now, if you have your confession of faith with you this morning, which I always recommend you do have, uh, if you want to turn to, ch- if, to chapter 2, paragraph 1, our confession lists many attributes of God in this section on of God and of the Holy Trinity. But it only lists one attribute three times. And that is the attribute of God's incomprehensibility. It states it in three different ways. It says that our God is one whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. 
goes on to say that he dwells in light which no man can approach unto. And thirdly and finally, if that's not enough, it simply states that he is incomprehensible. (laughs) So three times our confession of faith makes the point to say that our God is incomprehensible. But what does this mean? Well, I think it's always helpful, as R.C. Sproul would say, to begin with a definition. I've, I've placed the definition on your handout this morning, but we can say it like this. The doctrine of incomprehensibility is this, that the finite creature cannot comprehend the infinite essence of God. The finite creature cannot comprehend the infinite essence of God. Of God, that the creature can know God as he has revealed himself in his word and in his works, but it cannot know God's infinite essence in all of its glory and mystery. And that might seem odd to you (laughs) to begin a series aimed at knowing God more with a sermon on how we cannot know God fully and exhaustively. (laughs) This is the paradox of incomprehensibility, right? And we must begin with this, that we are confessing that we cannot comprehend. We are comprehending that we cannot comprehend, if I can put it in the most confusing way possible, right? This is essential that we begin from this place of humility. Because as St. Augustine said, if you comprehend God, it is not God that you comprehend. If you comprehend God, it is not God that you are comprehending. Because We have to be so careful. The moment we think that we have wrapped our minds around God is the moment that we evidence our idolatry, that we have formed an idol, an image in our own image, a God that suits us, that looks like us, but is not the God of Scripture. And so we must be very careful to not destroy the mystery of our incomprehensible God while at the same time confessing the one true and living God who has revealed himself to us. And we do this by confessing his divine attributes or perfections. And so we come to this question of what is God's incomprehensibility? What does this mean? And what we're really getting at when we confess that God is incomprehensible, that he's unsearchable, that he is unfathomable, immeasurable, ineffable, is what we are saying is that he is unable to be comprehended by the creature. We're really, we're really doing theology by means of negation, We're saying what God is not. This is how our confession puts it in in chapter 2, paragraph 1, where it says, Our God cannot be comprehended by anyone but Himself. We're not saying that God cannot comprehend Himself. Paul's very clear that the Spirit of God knows God, so God comprehends Himself fully, But we, the creature, the finite creature, cannot comprehend the infinite essence of God. But it's important for us to know this, that this is not just because we are sinful. The reason that we cannot comprehend God 
is not just because we are sinful. This certainly doesn't help us, <laughs> right? We have a fallen will, a fallen intellect. So we, we cannot comprehend God, and our, and our sinful nature certainly does not help us. But it is not just because we are sinful that we cannot comprehend God. As if to say, if we didn't have sin, then we could somehow get our minds around God, right? But this is not true. Even Adam and Eve in their perfect sinless state in the garden did not comprehend God fully. They had perfect fellowship with Him and communion with Him, but they did not comprehend Him. Even the most holy angels do not comprehend God. Nor is it because we just don't have enough time to wrap our minds around God. As if to think, given enough time, we could somehow know everything there is to know about God. If you take a piece of paper, right, if you study it for long enough, you can pretty much comprehend a piece of paper, right? You can know its length, its, its width, its weight, how it's structured. You can know, you can comprehend created things, even complicated created things. But that's not the case with our God. Even if you had eternity, you could not comprehend his greatness and his glory. As one theologian said, there is no last great thing about God. (laughs) You will never come to the end of his greatness. And this is what makes God's incomprehensibility so profound, brothers and sisters, because it includes not only what we don't know about God, or what we haven't learned yet about God, but God's incomprehensibility even includes the things that we do know. As James Dolzell put it, even in our knowing, we are not comprehending. Even in our knowing, we are not comprehending. The Dutch theologian Herman Boving put it like this, Incomprehensibility is the idea that the knowledge of God that he has revealed of himself in both nature and scripture far surpasses human imagination and understanding. That even the things that we know about God, his holiness, his love, his justice, his mercy, are not us comprehending those things. (laughs) You could say it like this. We know God is good, but we don't comprehend His goodness. We believe and confess that God is good, but we don't measure up His goodness. And this is what we see reflected throughout Holy Scripture, right? That the the authors of Scripture are wrestling with this idea that even though we know God is great, we know God is good, we cannot, as it were, measure up or fathom His greatness and His glory. And that's what we see for us in Psalm 145. That leads us to our second point, the testimony of Scripture. That we see in Psalm 145, David, the psalmist here, is crying out in praise and worship of God. He's, he's crying out, he's worshiping God, not first for what he has done, but first and foremost for who he is. He says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. 
And then he says this, and his greatness is unsearchable. God's greatness is unsearchable. His greatness no one can measure. Some of the older translations said his greatness is unfathomable, unable to be fathomed. Now, this word fathom, we use kind of commonly in our day, like, I can't fathom why this person would do that, right? But it actually comes from an old nautical term used for a depth of measurement in the water. That when sailors wanted to measure the depth of the water that they were, that they were in, they would let down a line to fathom or measure the depth of the water, They would let down a line or an anchor, and when that anchor reached the bottom, they had fathomed the depths of the waters. They had reached the bottom. They had measured, as it were, the waters that they were in. But what the psalmist is saying is that when it comes to God, His greatness, His glory, His goodness, His very being and essence When you let down the line, you find that there is no bottom. (laughs) His greatness and glory cannot be measured. His goodness is unfathomable. His very being is incomprehensible to the creature. You can let the line out as long as you want, and you will never reach the bottom of God's goodness and glory. If you want to turn with me a couple chapters earlier in the book of Psalms to a very famous psalm, Psalm 139. Many of us might have memorized this when we were younger. The psalmist David here as well, he speaks about this idea and he contrasts two things. He contrasts God's knowledge of the creature with the creature's knowledge of God. Maybe you've never thought about it like this before. Many of us are familiar with verses 1 through 5. Oh Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. And you are acquainted with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. The psalmist is describing God's knowledge of the creature and how God has a comprehensive knowledge of all that he has made. He knows man's actions. He knows man's words before they're even on his tongue. And he knows man's thoughts. God knows us in this way. He knows the number of hairs that are on our head. But is the inverse of that true? Do we know God in the same way that he knows us? Do we comprehend God in the way that he comprehends us? And we see the answer to this question in verse 6, when the psalmist ends in this way, he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. (laughs) This is the contrast between God's perfect knowledge of the creature and the creature's incomprehensible knowledge of God, that the finite, as we've said, cannot comprehend the infinite. But what's so amazing about these passages, if we think about our modern day, 
is that this idea that God cannot be comprehended, that he cannot be measured, he cannot be fathomed, it doesn't lead the psalmist to despair. It doesn't lead them to frustration. We're human, and so when we come up against something that we can't understand or can't comprehend, we often get frustrated. If you've ever tried to teach a little kid a math problem, right? <laughs> what's, what's two plus two? And they just can't wrap their minds around how this is possible. They can't comprehend this. It can lead to frustration. It can lead to despair. Even in our modern society where we just want to comprehend everything. We want to, we want to know everything, why everything is the way that it is. And when we run up against something that we cannot comprehend, we, come, we become frustrated. But when the psalmist comes up against God's incomprehensibility, his reaction is not to despair, but it rather leads him to worship and praise and adoration. What does he say in Psalm 145? Great is the Lord, and therefore he is greatly to be praised. (laughs) What does Paul say in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, when he's contemplating the mystery of God's salvation in in Christ? He says, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways, that God's incomprehensibility leads us not to despair or frustration, but rather to worship. But not just worship, it should also lead us to a profound sense of humility. If you want to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 through 14, we're sort of jumping all around here as we see what all of Scripture has to say about this doctrine of God's incomprehensibility. And we see in Psalm chapter 40 that this greatness and glory of God not only should lead us to worship, but but great humility as we come before God. The prophet says this, "'Who has measured the waters?' in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, and what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding. These are all rhetorical questions, and the answer to all these questions is no one. No one taught God understanding. No one showed him the path of justice. No one taught him knowledge. God is so far outside of all these things. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, and everywhere present. He has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. He has weighed the mountains in scales. Some of you might be coffee connoisseurs like myself. You appreciate a good cup of coffee. And maybe at home, if you're very serious about this, you have a scale by which to measure the beans that you put before you grind them up and you, and you do your pour over or whatever. Isaiah is saying that God measures the mountains, the highest mountains, as if on scales. We see in this passage the greatness and, and glory 
of our God who measures the waters in his hands and weighs the mountains in scales. Our God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere present, and we see that we are not. And so we see from this testimony of Scripture that our God is incomprehensible. He's unfathomable. His greatness cannot be measured, and He is unsearchable, and that the finite creature cannot comprehend the infinite essence of God. But we can get to this point, I think, as we're contemplating and think about it, thinking about God in this way, where we can start to ask ourselves, what's the point? What's the point? If God is incomprehensible, can we really know anything about him? Can we think true thoughts of God? If I can't comprehend God, why should I seek to know him and understand him more? And we can wrestle with this question in our head as we, as we think rightly about our God who is incomprehensible. We can struggle with this question of, can we know anything about this one? But what's so amazing about Scripture is that this same God who cannot be comprehended is the same one who has condescended to reveal himself to us so that we might know him truly. And that leads us to our third point this morning, the condescension of God. The condescension of God. That what's so amazing as you go through the Scriptures is you see that this same God who is incomprehensible is the same God who has chosen to reveal Himself to us so that we might know Him. The infinite, eternal, and incomprehensible God of the universe has condescended to reveal and make Himself known to His image bearers. Not by reducing His incomprehensibility, but by showing us the immeasurableness of His glory and goodness. Revealing Himself to us in both nature and Scripture, general and special revelation, so that we might actually know Him truly. And we can say this with confidence, that God has revealed Himself in both creation and Scripture. God has revealed Himself in both creation and Scripture. Looking firstly at creation. God has revealed Himself in creation. If you want to think about it like this, the theater of creation is a created, accommodated means by which the glory and goodness of God is made known to all image bearers. What does Psalm 19 start out with? The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Creation declares the glory of God. Paul will go on to confirm this in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, when he says that God has revealed his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, in the things that have been made. That God has revealed his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, in the things that have been made. In creation, God has revealed himself. 
We can know true things about God through nature and through creation. That all image bearers, apart from Scripture, see God's goodness, glory, and power in creation. That you can look at a tree in nature And even though that tree does not tell you you are a sinner and that you need the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, the tree tells you that there is a God, that someone put this world into order, that there is a God who is good, that will provide a tree that can provide fruit and shade, that there is a God of order, a God of power, a God who is good. And all image bearers know this goodness of God, and yet we see that they suppress this truth in unrighteousness. And that's why Paul can actually go on to say that everyone is without excuse, and that sinful man stands condemned before a holy God. Because even the person that has not had Scripture read to them has had the book of creation read to them that declares that God is good, that He's worthy of worship. Their conscience has borne witness to this. The moral law written on their heart has convicted them of their sin. And so all are without excuse. And this is important for us to maintain that creation has indeed revealed God and God has revealed Himself to us in creation. But the second thing is also true, that God has revealed Himself to us in Scripture. That God has given us His Word, His special revelation to us, so that we might know Him, not only as Creator, but that we might know Him savingly and covenantally. That we might know Him truly and with the eyes of faith, that Scripture is a means God uses to reveal Himself to us. Not only to tell us what creation also tells us, that God is good and glorious and powerful, but to tell us what creation cannot tell us. (laughs) The only way of salvation found in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Creation cannot tell us this. We need God's special revelation. That what we see in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ revealed to us in Holy Scripture is that God has spoken to us. God has revealed Himself to us. And we see this maybe most clearly in the incarnation of the Son of God. John will put it like this in the end of his prologue in John chapter 1, verse 18, speaking about the Word that took on flesh that is eternally begotten of the Father, it says that this one has made him known, has exegeted, had revealed him to us, that in the incarnation and in the sufferings and glory of the eternal Son of God, our incomprehensible God has made himself known to us and the only way of salvation found in the Lord Jesus Christ. That God has revealed this plan of redemption, this plan of salvation for unworthy sinners centered on the gospel of Christ. God has truly revealed Himself to us in the gospel. Again, not by reducing His incomprehensibility, but by showing us the immeasurableness of His goodness and grace. 
And we need not only the person and work of Christ, but we need the power of the Spirit to open our eyes to see and understand this knowledge. That we can know these things about God. We can have someone declare and even preach these things to us. But unless the Spirit is pleased to effectually call us to Himself, enlightening our minds so that we might understand the things of God, we will remain dead in our trespasses and sins. And so we see the absolute necessity of the triune God to reveal Himself to us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So God is incomprehensible, but He has chosen to reveal Himself to us through creation and Scripture. And so as we step away from this passage this morning, and as we begin to seek to apply these things and contemplate these things, we need to see a couple things this morning. The first one is this. We need to recover this doctrine of God's incomprehensibility. We need to recover this doctrine of God's incomprehensibility, this God of classical theism, as it's often referred to, this God of Nicene orthodoxy that the great creeds of the faith confess, that our own confession expounds upon, because the issue is that many in our day conceive of a God who is comprehensible. (laughs) They conceive of a God who is simply like us, but just a little bit greater, A God that actually looks and thinks a lot like us, but is maybe just a little bit better than us. And sadly, the doctrine of God as a whole has kind of taken a back seat in our day. And and the way you can kind of tell this is that even in our prayers, if you listen to the prayers of most people, not that it's bad to talk about what God has done, but you'll see that there's almost no emphasis on who God is on His glory, and on His splendor, and on His attributes. The focus is almost entirely on what God has done and not who He is. And so we can be tempted to think that if we, if we just focus on the, what God has done and not who He is, that it will have no effect on our lives, on our faith, or on our practice. That we can create a God in our own image, and that it will have no effect on how we live our lives as believers. But what we do is we end up creating idols and we end up worshiping those idols instead of the God of Scripture. If we can go back to what Augustine said, if you comprehend God, it's not God you comprehend. And so what we think about God is of first importance. We need to seek to understand God Rightly, We need to think about God rightly. And this helps us in several ways. It keeps us from idolatry. It keeps us from idolatry. Think about the first and second commandment. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not create any images representing me. This keeps us from forming a God in our own image that looks like us and thinks like us. Rather, the truth that Scripture teaches is that we worship a God who is incomprehensible, who is infinite, who is eternal, and who is immutable. But as we come against this question, we can often get this accusation thrown at us. Isn't this all too difficult for people to understand? Isn't this all head knowledge? Isn't taking time to think about the attributes of God or even consider the doctrine of God, isn't that all head knowledge? 
It's just theology. It's just speculation. It has no practical effect on how we live. But it's so important that we see this, brothers and sisters, that right knowledge of God leads to right worship of God. Right doctrine leads to right devotion. We could say it like this, orthodoxy leads to doxology, right? What we know about God leads us to worship Him. One theologian said it like this, right knowledge of God begins in the head, but it does not end there. It affects the heart and regulates the life. And so as we think about what this doctrine of God's incomprehensibility does for us and how it affects us, there's three things I wanted to look at this morning. The first one is this, it affects our prayers and our worship. It affects our prayers and our worship. When we, when, we, when we come before God in prayer, we are coming before the one who is infinite, the one who is eternal, the one who is incomprehensible. And not only does this give us the proper sense of reverence and awe as we come before God in prayer, our prayer should never be flippant It gives us the proper sense of reverence and awe as we come before God, but it also reminds us that we are coming before the one who is immovable and the immovable foundation of our prayers. We are going before the one who is infinite. It affects our worship that when we become before this one, he's not only great and therefore greatly to be praised, but as the psalmist says, he is the one whose greatness has no end. His greatness is unsearchable. And so that allows us to declare His greatness in our hearts, in our mouths, and in all things we can declare the greatness of our God as we come before Him in worship. But the second thing that this doctrine affects is that it gives us a great comfort in times of suffering. It gives us a great comfort in times of suffering because I think that When we are suffering, we can be tempted to doubt and despair. We can be tempted, much like Job was, to doubt God and to doubt His ways. Why is this suffering occurring? Why is this trial happening to me? We want to understand. We want to know. We want to comprehend God and His ways and why He is allowing this suffering to happen. But if I can quote the prophet Isaiah in chapter 55, speaking for the Lord, he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. That this is actually a great comfort to the believer in times of suffering. That if you look at the book of Job, Job's greatest gift at the end of the book is not that he had everything restored to him that he lost. It was that he saw a clearer vision of the God who cannot be comprehended. It's not just because he got all of his things back. It's because he saw more clearly the God who is incomprehensible. Listen to this quote from the post-Reformation reformer, Pietrus von Maastricht. He says this, 
speaking about the practical application of thinking about the attributes of God. Will not his immutability render us certain that he will remain our God? Will not his truthfulness make us rest unmoved upon his promises? Will not his goodness and love make us secure in whatever adversities we face, that in all things they might serve our advantage? Will not his mercy give us hope that he will graciously forgive our sins? And will not his almighty power persuade us that he can furnish everything that he has promised and all this for our benefit? We can take great comfort, brothers and sisters, from contemplating the greatness and glory of our God. It is not simply head knowledge. It should work its way and affect our heart and our lives. That we will not comprehend God and His ways, but we can rest upon the One whose goodness has no end. And thirdly, we see how this helps us look to the glory of heaven. Because we can be tempted to think in our very earthly understanding that heaven will kind of be boring. It's described in Scripture as this place where there is endless praise, where there is praise upon praise of our God. And we can think about it in a way that, that is sinful, where we think that doesn't sound very exciting. That doesn't sound very um, entertaining. I want to be entertained, right? But when we get to heaven, brothers and sisters, the glory of heaven is that there is no end to God's goodness, that we will never find the bottom of His glory, that we will spend eternity worshiping the one who is incomprehensible. But as we think about these things and as we consider the immensity of our God and its practical relevance for our lives, I think again we can be tempted and this thought can creep into our heads of discouragement. That as we contemplate the incomprehensibility of God, we can be tempted to become discouraged. Maybe it's in the form of a particular doctrine that we are struggling to wrap our minds around, to understand. We've seen it revealed in Scripture, but we're struggling to comprehend it. Or maybe we are struggling with the question, can I even know God at all? If He's so incomprehensible, how can I even know Him? If God is so far above us, what is the point in seeking Him? And I think we're helped by the Apostle Paul as we read and as we read this morning in Ephesians 1 that what Paul prays for the people of God is that they might grow in their wisdom and understanding and their knowledge of God and what He's done for us in the Gospel. That we can say as believers that we do know God. <laughs> that we know Him truly. Not comprehensively, not exhaustively, but savingly and covenantally. He has revealed Himself to us as our chief joy and satisfaction, and our only hope of salvation that's founded and rooted in the person and work of Christ. And so as we come before God in worship, as we attend the means of grace, we can do these things expectantly. We don't need to fear that God is so far off that He won't reveal Himself to us. No, He is pleased to reveal Himself to us 
so that we might know and understand him more. And we should pray as Paul prays that we would grow in our wisdom and in our understanding and in our knowledge of God. And even though our God cannot be comprehended, the scripture is actually full of commands to seek after the Lord while he may be found. Isaiah 55 says, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. When Paul is in Acts 17, doing apologetics. He's telling them that God has made man that they should seek after him and if possible, feel their way toward him. That in many ways, what we're calling the unbeliever to do is to believe, to seek after the Lord. He's revealed himself in creation. He's revealed his plan of salvation in his word. And outside of this, brothers and sisters, there's no hope apart from knowing the one who is incomprehensible. And so our aim as, as Christians, as believers, our chief end is to know God as he has revealed himself and to glorify him forever. Not comprehending him, but growing in the wisdom and knowledge of God and in the gospel of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your greatness and glory. We confess that we have not thought on these things as we should. We are so tempted to create a God in our own image, one that we can comprehend, that looks and thinks like us. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to be helped by your scripture, by your word, to have a bigger and clearer picture of who you are and who you have revealed yourself to be. Keep us from discouragement and frustration as we contemplate these things. Help us to know that even though you are incomprehensible, you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. We can know you truly and savingly because of the work of your Spirit. And so we pray this morning, Lord, that you would would strengthen us, that you would help us to grow in the wisdom and knowledge of you, and that as we, we contemplate these things, that we might be affected in our prayer, in our worship, that we might be comforted in suffering, and ultimately that we would look toward heaven where 10,000 years will only be the beginning of our praise to you. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.